Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Andy Warhol created a large and distinctive body of work in both film and video. In this Rajiv Vadya Memorial Lecture, recorded on December 4th, 2011, John G. Hanhart, historian of experimental media, examines the various ways Warhol reshaped time and narrative in both media, illustrated with experts from Warhol's films and videotapes. This program was scheduled to coincide with Warhol on the Mall, a joint celebration on the occasion of two exhibitions, Warhol Headlines at the National Gallery of Art, Washington, September 25, 2011 to January 2, 2012, and Andy Warhol Shadows at the Smithsonian's Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, September 25, 2011 to January 15, 2012. Warhol Headlines uh, is really uh, an outstanding example of an exhibition that reflects on Warhol's treatment of various media as a means to give insight into Warhol's artistic practice and the ways he responded to the world around him. These are vital issues to understanding an artist who worked in so many different um, materials and looked at the world in a large uh, way. Warhol was really, as we see in that exhibition, fascinated by popular culture, the Hollywood cinema, celebrity and stars, and television. So I want this afternoon to offer some reflections on Warhol's cinematic practice and interest in uh, film and video and television and how his framing of the scene, his treatment of editing and of time, how he contained and controlled time, are strategies that self-reflectively engage the moving image. They make us aware of what we're watching in the process and the time that we're spending with the work, a key issue within 20th century modernism. Now, these aesthetic strategies are not unrelated to his other artwork. We can see how his serial images um, also really uh, connect to the uh, properties of the cinematic, the construction of the moving image. And this is perhaps most dramatically shown in the installation of uh, shadows. Oh, uh, next image. There we go. Um, at the Hirshhorn, uh, currently installed uh, at the Hirshhorn Museum, where 102 silk-screened, hand-painted canvases are installed edge to edge and cover over 450 linear feet. Now we can trace uh, subtle uh, shifts and changes that uh, occur in the construction of the individual images seen and sequenced and placed side by side like a strip of celluloid. The source still image of shadows is the same in each canvas but is altered through the applications of colors and subtle changes being made to the very surface and illusionistic space of the canvas. Its power, the power of this work, comes through the number of images and its extended installation and the viewer's reception of the work as one moves past the canvases as single or multiple images captured from the viewer's different points of view. So as you're walking along, you look at individual images. Next slide, please. And uh, you can then place them in relationship uh, to each other from these um, different points of view that you actively take as if you were taking in uh, the exhibition. Thus there is in shadows a sense of movement, of change that animates the work as a sequence and as I said, in relation to the spectator. Now Warhol's films uh, treat subtle shifts and changes in the composition and movement of the cinematic moving image. In Warhol's early work, he set up his camera in a stationary position on a tripod to frame the action. Next slide. Uh, here we see him uh, in the factory in 1965 filming one of his screen tests. There's Warhol behind the cameras, 16 millimeter camera on the tripod and uh, with this white surface behind the subject, uh, uh, in this case Kelly, it's a, one of the, as I said, one of the screen tests. 
it is static here in terms of the camera's mobility, but the images themselves move in time, and that is shaping and changing our perception and reception of the work. Remember, and here I, I've asked someone if I've brought with me some strips of 16 millimeter film, which I would like if they could just sort of be distributed to the audience. Maybe it'll eventually it'll find your, your way to you. And um, these uh, strips of film, because in this digital age, we've forgotten, I think, often that these films, the celluloid shot in the camera, that Bolex, then sent out to be processed, developed, and then was actually physically handled, edited, and spliced together. And um, if you um, uh, take a look at the uh, individual frames, because they change very subtly, and when projected, it is captured in our sensory system as a continuous moving image. And uh, so these 60 millimeter uh, film frames um, really give you that sense. And I think it's interesting to think of these and also in terms of shadows, those individual canvases in a row. Look at these individual frames on the side uh, in a row and uh, the basis of the moving uh, image. Um, and, I some, and I do think that uh, we have to um, uh, recognize that these, these, the, this material basis of film as we recognize the canvas as the source of what the material that Warhol was working with. So film and time was what he was treating. Now, I remember uh, over the time I was meeting with Andy Warhol, I spent, uh, had an extended period of wanting to convince him that he should place his films, which he had withdrawn from circulation back in the 70s. He withdrew them from, from distribution, put them inside his studio, put them away, and um, really couldn't be seen uh, anymore. No one had access to them. And I really felt it was important that his work's films be seen in relationship not only to his own art, but also to late 20th century art. And um, let me uh, begin now with a, uh, a sequence, because one of the first, uh, Jeannie, we can project the next piece. Um, whenever uh, one of the first films that I looked at when I was up in the storage area where he kept his, 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 his uh, films and other materials that he collected, he was a great collector, um, was Kiss. Uh, this is a film from 1963-64. It's an hour, about an hour long. And, um, and uh, but the time of its running time is one thing. The other dimension to this work was that it was filmed at sound speed, which means it was filmed at 24 frames per second, and then projected at 16 frames per second, increasing its running time, changing how we see and receive that image. And I think this is a, a, a very important part of understanding how Warhol worked with film. Um, as the film moved through the projector, the composition comes to life, and what we discovered was the treatment of blacks and whites. So here's the, the frame framing the action. Each couple, two individuals, are actively, passively, all kinds of ways, kissing, um, in, and filmed on 100-foot rolls of film. So these series of couples kissing, framing of the two heads, the length of the shot, slowed down, drawing out the movement, and the focus of the frame on shaping the action from the point of the camera, which in this case is as a fixed position. The camera is not moving, all the action, all the act that's taking place in the work is inside the frame. And as I said, it's uh, not unrelated, not to belabor this point, but with shadows in terms that the actions with variation are, are the same, but uh, different, and different kisses unfolding in time, 
and with each role playing off of each other, each different and the same at the same time. So this um, idea that uh, becomes uh, central to uh, Warhol's uh, uh, cinema. Uh, and he is, in, in a sense, um, going back to the of sort of the beginnings, if you will, of the cinema, foundation of film, these silent films, again, because of their being projected. And here you see the, the, the roll running, there's you know, the sprocket holes, you'll see the sprocket holes appear. There's no um, hiding the material of film, and the roll of film determines its length. So that there are these sort of quantifiable rules role, that are being played, uh, but within them there's a dynamic change. Just as uh, a can uh, the limit of any canvas provides the, uh, a certain frame to what happens inside it, how the artist is working it, we really have to think about this in terms of how the black and white moving image is being worked, reworked, and playing over time. And there's a real effort on his part to challenge how we expect time and action and narrative to take place. You know, we're used to thinking, well, you watch a film, like traditional theater, has a big, there's an illusional frame, has a beginning, middle, and end, and it plays out. And um, uh, that's what, part of what Warhol, as I will illustrate further, is working against uh, in his films as he cr expands his art practice uh, into uh, the moving uh, image. As I was uh, noting earlier, one of the um, uh, issues that, uh, I, that w it was really struck me when I first saw this work, because when he withdrew his films, nobody had access to them. They were just dirty, torn copies. Uh, uh, there they weren't the original print materials. And when Andy agreed to this project, I then set up a partnership between the Whitney Museum for the scholarship and the Museum Modern Art Department of Film for the preservation, because they have the great film archive and preserve the, to preserve the films. And we discovered that these films had these rich tonalities these subtle differences. Now some of that is lost here because I'm showing you a digital copy for the purposes of illustrating my lecture. You really should see it as I was distributing to you as a piece of film because then you have the light projected through the celluloid and animating and um, really giving a crisp tonalities uh, to, the, um, to the film, which is what Warhol was um, really concentrating on uh, in this work. It's almost Caravaggio-like darkness uh, in the black field around the uh, embracing uh, couple. So here we come to the end of the ro roll. See it flashes, there was the cut of the film. There. Now, before turning uh, to some more of Warhol's films and video works, I think it's important uh, to place the issue of time-based, the moving image art, in the larger context of how we see and receive art. Uh, Peggy made reference to this in her introduction. Um, the development of the moving image, uh, making, uh, moving image making really challenges how we are accustomed to look at images in the museum. The great centers for the enjoyment of uh, study and presentation of art, these great institutions uh, uh, are challenged in terms of how to integrate uh, the moving uh, image into their collections and into their exhibitions. Um, because we're used to thinking we're looking at an artwork when it's still, well, we walk by it, well, that was interesting. But of course, if you spend time with it, it unfolds and more becomes revealed. Well, time-based art demands attention over time, and this sort of confronts uh, the way we are accustomed to looking at traditional art practices. But I firmly believe that the history of 20th century art is essentially gonna be rewritten through the impact of the moving image, because painting, sculpture, architecture, theater, dance, literature, 
as, uh, were, have entirely changed over the course of the 20th century through the impact of what the cinema and the moving image uh, created and how we see the, ourselves and the world around us. And they became art forms themselves as part of a global media art culture, uh, film, video, digital media, the internet, to the interactive forms of video games. So out of these aesthetic discourses, uh, uh, one of these uh, discourses that I want to focus on now is the foundational one, and that is the classical cinema, the great tradition of filmmaking. It is uh, the form of storytelling and composition of screen time and space that has a long history from the, across the 20th century. And this tradition is what I feel attracted Warhol in the first place to become a filmmaker. Um, he was fascinated, as was Jack Smith, an artist Warhol knew and worked with, with the cinema, the Hollywood dream factory, uh, that very movement on the screen of desire, of attraction, sexualities, that, uh, all of these that played out in the cinema and that were to people our arts and literature and the cinematic, the stars, the sets, the decor, all of it was an enormous attraction to Warhol and to other artists uh, in, across the 20th century, but certainly mid 20th century. We could argue as we look across Warhol's body of films that he is in a sense reinventing the cinema from the silent to the sound films, from shorts to features, as he created his own galaxy of stars that uh, peopled his films, creating at the same time an anti-narrative where gender and sexualities were fluid and de de destabilized uh, discourse. Focusing on an action, such as we just saw in Kiss, was to transform the great moment of the kiss in the romance of the narrative Hollywood film. Um, and, and so, that his relationship to the cinema, I think, is a powerful one, and it's what uh, uh, asks the question about how Warhol saw those films, what he drew from them and expressed in the ways he made films. This is an area that I think really needs a lot of research. But that aside, I have chosen to illustrate, which I thought would be great to the classical rhetorical form of the cinema with a scene from Lucino Visconti's Death in Venice from 1971. Um, because it exemplifies a composition for the uh, motion picture camera, an elaborate studio production that is radically different from the independent cinema of Warhol's filmmaking. However, it is part of the language of filmmaking that has been hugely influential on how we represent the world around us. It is also a system that the independent avant-garde cinema radically challenged and transformed. So an understanding of the strategies, the codes, the ways of filmmaking in the classical system is, I think, essential to understanding all forms of cinema, from Hollywood to the avant-garde to video games. Video games are essentially playing out cinematic codes in terms of their construction of narrative and interactivity. Now, the source um, of, for the film scenes that I'm going to show you is by uh, uh, is the Lucino Visconti, he's one of the great, a great Italian director. Uh, Death in Venice is based on Thomas Mann's novella, Death in Venice, and the sequence I will show features uh, Dirk Bogard as Aschenbach as he recognizes and responds to his obsession with the young man Tazio. It begins in an elegant Venetian hotel. So if we could begin with that, I want to speak over it. There's, there's music in this scene. The music sort of uh, is composing uh, what we hear, but it's really the way this scene is constructed. Here's uh, Aschenbach, Dirk Bogart, entering the scene. Notice how the camera is tracking across to reveal the class of people, the decor, this fantastic plant that, you know, that where the action is happening layered in the space, foreground. As the camera moves in, he's moving across. So the space becomes uh, an active you know, way of coming to understand this character as he negotiates, figuring out where he's going to see, uh, sit, and so forth. It is really seamless cinematography. Uh, 
strategic editing that's effortless, uh, the gliding camera creating a seamless narrative space, um, and all the deliberate lighting and choice of characters and decor, as I mentioned, and costuming sets the terms of uh, early 20th century, uh, fin de siècle, uh, Europe, and um, the, uh, the life of uh, the upper classes. And here's Aschenbach, this scholar who takes a newspaper. Now the camera is sort of essentially putting us in this sort of authorial point of view. Oh, we, we see the world from the camera. It has great authority, and we see him relaxing from this point of view, looking at, trying to look at the newspaper, dressed for dinner. Now the camera here uh, shifts, gradually moves to our left, across the camera, back to where emblems that we've seen before, like this potted plant. This, look at this ridge. Look how it's, the, all the area of space is lit to pick up all this detail. Camera goes back to Achenbach, who begins to look forward. And now we see the subject of his attention, uh, a family uh, that um, is as we'll see, caught his attention, all sitting very primly in the dining, the area outside the dining room. So we sense the camera, and there's to become his idée fixe. Uh, so we cut from the boy to his open look, that sort of expression of, we know he's made a connection, uh, he's hiding himself behind his newspaper. This kind of music continues. He's thinking, wants, how does he look over the newspaper? How does he look back? So here we are caught in these gazes that are constructing this space. And I'm spending time with this because it's the kind of classic, as I said, the rhetorical form of the cinema that Warhol loved, but he used to intervene into and break. So here the camera goes now, back from the boy, back across the room, as we're crisscrossing points of view, the camera, Aschenbach, then the boys. I mean, you can't imagine the investment to make this scene work. I mean, everything that had to be composed and worked out in the studio, uh, to make it appear seamless, as I keep saying, and, and effortless, it just seems so natural, right? Because these are the codes that we're familiar with. Okay, he's looking, now the camera pulls back. You know, he's thinking. Tip, tip, tip. And then the announcement for dinner. So the whole nature of how the time is organized, you know, it's a ritual that we see playing out. Again, these are all rituals that even Warhol was to take apart, deconstruct in his films. The rituals of, of society, of pleasure, of expectation. But here they are presented in this fantastic narrative. Now he's announcing dinner. Effortlessly moving ahead at 24 frames per second. Sound speed. And the room is emptying out, which all draws that much more attention to our friend here, who's not moving. And then this is a fantastic scene where the camera pulls back and situates him directly in his look over his shoulder, is that fantastic? How we've now found ourselves behind him looking directly at the subject. This is a whole elaborate construct to set up this relationship. I'm also showing it because it happens to be one of my favorite scenes out of world cinema, but it, 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 I, you'll see how, it, how Warhol plays against this. 
Again, here he is from his point of view. The room is now emptied out. Now they're all getting up because the, the mother is coming in. Where her very polite children greet her in the ways of the family at this time. So they say hello to their mother. Thank you for being polite children. And the, the matron who takes care of them, they sit down for a moment. Now you have to know what the camera is telling us. All this is being told to the camera, that's my point. Spoken language is at a minimal. It's a, just a background music, and it's like dance. It's a choreography. It's also a musical composition, this scene. Crescendo, build up, divertisement. I mean, it's all being into this, into this, into this hole. And we're coming to the end of the scene in a crucial way. His gesture echoing Aschenbach's. The conversation is meaningless. I mean, it's not uh, meaningless to them, but to us, we don't have to. He's amused. Now, essentially, this whole scene was constructed, this whole thing I've taken you through, for what is going to be the final moment. They leave the dining room. He's alone, left in the room. They walk by. Now, you have to remember, this is, has to be elaborately staged and planned for when Tadzio gets to this point, he's rolling up his newspaper, he thinks to look, and he looks back. Bingo. And the light on his face, of course, has to fall just right. So that is a, uh, and his own awareness. So that is a great scene from uh, what I call this, this classical in terms of its standard uh, form of film language. Now, in response to this film language, Warhol was to rupture this seamless and proportional and balanced uh, view. He was to fix the camera on the imaginary, in the process of exploring the cinematic by recognizing its power to observe time and stillness, to draw out performances, to create an uncanny mix of control and chance. He'd set up this situation and then leave it to chance to what would happen. He would shape the scenes for his performers, giving them a chance to perform and act for the camera. In the process, giving us a powerful vision of art and experience. Now, to illustrate this uh, idea of this break and this formal framing of the action, we're going to take a look at a film entitled Vinyl from 1965. It's about an hour long. It features Gerard Malanga and Edie Sedgwick. And the film, as if I, I've always been fascinated by it in terms of how it articulates subtle shifts in power on screen and off as the frame of the camera sets the scene. Now, Vinyl is based on a script by Ronald Tavell, who is an avant-garde, part of the uh, fringe of uh, theater, uh, off-Broadway off theater, fantastic uh, script writer, a play, a playwright. And it's based on Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange. And Gerard Malanga plays the young hoodlum, Victor. Now, I've chosen to focus on the opening of the film with Malanga looking at us at, at, at the beginning. Again, the idea of the gaze coming to us, the camera acknowledging us. And then Malanga moves about within a constricted set with action in the foreground, background, and out of the shot. And the space is, as I'll show you, is crisscrossed by multiple gazes drawing us into the layered sort of ch chamber, if you will, of this spectacle. And uh, it's an example of a kind of um, a Brechtian acknowledgment of process and artifice. 
He's making us aware of the fact that this is, a, is, a, is, is this real fiction that is happening in front of us. And there's no illusion here. The voiceover credits, it plays between document and fiction. So let's, uh, Jeannie, let's take a look at the next excerpt. And I want to, again, uh, speak over this a bit. Begins, this is, you can turn the sound up a bit, too, when it pops on. I think it begins silently, but there should be sound. But So it begins with the camera looking at him. Notice how it's brightly lit um, in terms of uh, you know how the figure is lit. He bends his head down and then begins to reveal the um, uh, space, if you will, behind him into the, uh, into the shot. So here's Gerard Malanga, as I said, playing Victor. I mean, this idea of the ag aggressive person. Edie Sedgwick. And essentially, this is the, this is the space that we're working with, um, with f figures in deep space, mid-ground, distance, and the foreground, and how they are looking at each other and looking across. So there's a very deliberately composed uh, image for the narrative to unfold in. But it doesn't begin with a stable opening. We begin to gradually enter into it, and uh, a script which is then improvised by um, uh, the performers. There is that interaction between them and Tavel's script. So this claustrophobic, determined space by the frame. Every inch, you know, different people occupying different ways of looking crisscrossing, as I said, this space, uh, is Victor the hoodlum from Clockwork Orange. But he's also, as you'll see, he's reading the lines in a stilted language of reading, like he's reading off the script, which is somebody's off the screen. There's action that's directed at them from off the screen, so it's, the camera never moves. So the sadomasochistic torture evolves in the deep space of the cameras uh, tying him up, melting wax. I mean, all this takes place over the hour. Music comes and goes from the, from the scene, in the scenes. Uh, Gerard performing, dancing, different actions, and all framed by, again, these figures um, who are in their shots, but just seem to be, they, they sort of set up a, a periphery to the stage and, and a way of, of directing uh, the action. Now, this is all set up by Warhol. It's all composed, working with Tavel for this action. So this works totally against that kind of seamless, unselfconscious, if you will, world of the cinematic, and very much uh, in, in part of the, what was the avant-garde theater uh, at this time, in the 60s, and, and film. But Warhol creating a distinctive and unique uh, voice. And the action continues. But again, it's that narrative space, the limits of it, and I keep talking about the artifice of, it, of the action, acknowledgement of the, what's happening outside the frame and inside it, the, how the space is constricted by uh, the camera. All these very deliberate actions that come from Warhol's understanding of the possibility of working to frame an action for the film that uh, strips it uh, uh, and, and breaks out of the uh, traditional if you, uh, and narrative logic uh, of, of film uh, making. 
Now I'd like to contrast that sequence we've just seen from vinyl with a film from 1964, same time, of Henry Geltzauer. Um, Henry Geltzauer was a key figure, and Janine, we can begin it whenever, um, in the uh, New York art world, a close friend of Andy's. And um, this film is, um, has a, it's a feature length running time. Uh, it's silent, uh, and it's projected at 16 to 18 frames per second. So the, this is a, uh, unlike the screen tests, which were short, about four minutes each, this is an extended set of takes to, or with 1,200 foot reels, each roll becoming part of the total 99 uh, minute running time. Now, the film, the, kid fil the film consists of these rolls of films silently showing Geltzauer as he performs, if you will, self-consciously composing himself, the power of the, reflecting the power uh, and relationship between the camera and its subject as it sets into motion this vivid uh, portrayal of the subject and um, the kind of self-conscious control, the shifting power between Warhol behind the cam camera and Gelsaller in front of it. Um, as Callie Angel, uh, the late curator of the Andy Orho Film Project and author of the Screen Test book wrote, what you get are some very intense performances here, performances which emerge from the tension that is created when people are asked to behave as if they were their own image. So the, uh, that characterization of the short Screen Test certainly applies to this more extended uh, film where um, Warhol again is changing how we see acting and faces uh, and in performance. Now, you know, it's, not, it's interesting to see the subject here in this uh, struggle between uh, Geltzaler attempting to, you know, remain in control, to portray himself. I mean, this goes on for 90 minutes and um, smoking, lounging, and, uh, but it, it becomes this kind of sort of, but think about how point of view was reflected in the Visconti film, how point of view was destabilized and constructed within vinyl, and then here, within a feature film, uh, looking strictly and solely at the subject and the tension between that subject and the camera and its relentless uh, representation. It's a relentless recording of the action, which is all, in, it's all enhanced, if you will, heightened, I think the best or better word, by the lack of sound. So that what we're just seeing, there's nothing else to uh, detract us uh, from uh, looking uh, at uh, the person. Now, you know, I mean, these um, longer films and the short screen test films as portraits uh, really invite a challenge to the notion of the portrait because we, we're so, we're conventionally, we traditionally see the portraits that painted representation, interpretation of the subject and the photograph as a still uh, representation of the subject again but composed by the photographer. Here time becomes the factor that opens this uh, portrait up and the extent, further extension of it being slowed down so that the material of time and change become almost tangible. I mean, you can just sort of feel how Geltzauer sort of emerged in himself, put into this situation, and is, uh, without a mirror, looking at, him, at uh, uh, himself. I also like to think it's sort of interesting to um, see the, both of these films in terms of the construction of point of view as opposed to the elaborate narrative sequence that we saw with the Visconti film. I mean, this isolation, this focusing a, on a single aspect of the cinematic. Uh -huh. 
And because the reels are longer than the uh, usual shorter reels of film, it was a different camera. This was filmed around the time that Warhol filmed Empire, which had an Oricon camera. Oh, okay. Now, um, so that they were more extended uh, images, uh, film sequences. Now, what I'm, I want to juxtapose that to, this is a um, further reflection on how Warhol acknowledged the filmmaking process, uh, which extends here to the film's actual mm -hmm. reception. This is a still from people watching Henry on screen. Here's Henry on screen, people watching. And it's a 100-foot roll documenting a screening of Henry Geltzeller at the factory in 1964, 1965. It's a film that hasn't been preserved, so all we have for now is this still image. And it's a very interesting discovery because it's part of modernism's own self-referential, something I mentioned at the beginning, and meta-strategy of acknowledging the making of the work in the text itself. So this is a film that's about the reception uh, of the film. And from Brecht's theater to Borges' literature to Michael Snow's cinema, we can see this effort to bring uh, different factors of how we represent knowledge and understand ourselves self-consciously and to the surface of the text, written or filmic or painterly or what, whatever the medium is. So this, uh, I think, is very interesting because we see once again, Warhol reflecting in this film on the projection or reception uh, of his own film and really anticipating in many ways the radical deployment of film in the modernism and postmodern work of the avant-garde cinema of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, my um, final examples uh, in my presentation uh, include Warhol's engagement with video and production of films for wider uh, distribution. Bringing Warhol, I like to say, in full circle, bringing Warhol full circle in his quest to embrace and transform the cinematic, video, and television. So I'm going to begin with, uh, next image, please. Uh, outer and Inner uh, Space from 1965, a two-screen projection. This um, uh, was screened here, I think, yesterday in the program. And I remember when I um, first saw the film, it was absolutely you know, astonishing because this still uh, documents uh, an asp a moment from this two-screen uh, film. We see uh, on screen Edie Sedgwick seated in front of a large television monitor, which is playing a pre-recorded videotape of herself. She's aligned in relation to the screen. On the left screen, we see the video image and profile looks to the right, looking as if talking to, to someone. On the right, the screen of the real or live Edie faces left, addressing someone uh, off screen to the left of the camera, creating the impression that she's talking to the video image. Now Warhol shot these two 33-minute sound reels with the two Sedgwicks, uh, video and live, and then projected the two reels side by side, creating essentially a quadruple uh, portrait. Uh, Callie Angel has written that this dual portrait reflects on the inner uh, and outer Edie, the contrast between her outer beauty and the, her inner turmoil. Um, uh, Warhol's treatment of two representational spaces through video and film, as well as treatment of point of view as Edie's gaze shifts across these two uh, media. I mean, it's just a fantastic construction in terms of uh, his incorporation um, of video into uh, uh, his work. I mean, he acquired uh, very early on, 65, um, a video recorder player that, as we see, he incorporated into his filmmaking. And he was intrigued, as he said in an interview in 1965, with the way video provided such immediacy 
and being able to see the recorded video immediately in playback, thus allowing him to fashion this double portrait by posing the subject in front of her own image on the video monitor. So he had this intuitive, uh, profound understanding of what artists saw as the porta pack came into, it was introduced. And that was that, that strip of celluloid that I distributed to you that had to be developed to be seen and projected could now be with the magnetic tape of video be seen immediately or on a monitor in real time as it was being shot by the camera. This was a, this opened up in terms of a video installation art and performance, a whole new way of working with the moving image. Um, so uh, it's very interesting if, as Warhol deliberately working with both media, film and video, and creating on and with video in ways that, as I said, anticipated uh, what other artists who were to acquire this new technology so shortly thereafter were to develop. Now, I wanted to um, go before concluding with some of Andy's uh, Warhol's video work to show a, a, a piece from 1967, um, Lonesome Cowboys. Um, it's, I, I'm showing it because it's one of uh, Warhol's, it was two years, it was filmed two years after Outer and Inner Space. And um, it's one of the last films that Warhol directed before Paul Morrissey directed under Warhol Productions, uh, Flash, Trash, Women in Revolt. Some of you may know those films. They were produced under the name of Warhol Productions, but Andy Warhol wasn't directing them. And um, this film, Lonesome Cowboys, uh, uh, plays off of the Western film genre and myth. It's a homoerotic satire uh, that um, treats the archetypal story of Romeo and Juliet in a way. Viva is Ramona and features Joe D'Alessandro and Taylor Mead, wonderful performers, especially Taylor Mead within the avant-garde film. We also see Francis Francine, who is a star of Jack Smith's Flaming Creatures, as a sheriff, and it was shot on location, location in Tucson, Arizona. So here was an effort by Warhol to make a feature-length movie, a film that he wanted to uh, distribute, like, uh, but unlike Chelsea Girls, not as radical in terms of the double, you know, multiple screens and so forth, but to um, work within a genre of the classical cinema, which of the American cinema, of course, the Western is one of the great ones in terms of how it, it works in, our, in the history of, of the world, of, US, of our cinema. Um, it makes gender, sexualities, performance turns, the Western genre myth into a contested, shifting, and playful tableau of artifice, infused with, I convinced, our Warhol's absolute love of the cinema. Now, he uh, employs a variety of techniques. That we're, I'm, I'm going to show you an excerpt beginning right from the start of the film. And um, he employs techniques to disrupt and make one aware, again, of the camera and the filming of the action, which is itself self-conscious and performably self-referential, because they're making us aware of the fact that the performers are aware of the fact that they're performing in this, in this fiction, in this film. So, Janine, when you're ready, let's go to um, the opening of uh, Lonesome Cowboys. Here we see uh, Taylor Mead. There's sound here. Should be up. The silence is becoming the best audio. <laughs> so, I'll talk about the confusion of life. This. Now, now. So that abrupt cut, look at the car tracks out in the middle. I mean, there's no hiding anything here. And this uh, old set, probably a Western set, this kind of ambling time. Taylor Mead on the right, Viva coming into the scene. Um, the sound recording, I mean, is it, Buzzes going on, anti contrary to the notion of the professional film, working against those, as I've been saying, against those practices. And then these flash cuts. Uh, 
where the camera um, would stop and the shutter remain open. And when it's open, the light exposes the film frame in the camera, causing this strobe-like effect that we just saw. And we'll see again. You also see situations where the film frames are ahead uh, of the, um, on, uh, uh, in the camera, and um, so that there's a delay in the sound from the previous shot. You'll see some examples of this strobe-like effect and a delay in the sound. Again, technical interventions into the apparatus of the cinema. Um, this is an example of what I've called these steps in Warhol's sort of meta-history of film trajectory. As his film engages formally and through, as I said, narrative disruption, the classical film narrative, as it also showed a real insight into what became a new generation of independent film as this work went into theatrical release. So, <clears throat> and I want to conclude that after an attempt on Warhol's life in 1968, he increasingly assumed the role of producer and turned to video and then television. In 1970, he acquired video equipment, which became part of the studio, creating portraits of people made before the camera. The camera was set up in the space where people could record themse uh, themselves as portraits. He also created portraits of people um, uh, working, uh, the daily life of everyday events in the factory. These became known as the factory diaries. Uh, and then also Warhol working in the studio, in addition footage of w Warhol's mother at his home. And this, all this body of work uh, it came to light as both these personal experimental narratives and documentaries and processed films, videotapes that he was making, um, but it, it really reflected as his personal involvement of per and film production closed down, and he withdrew his films from distribution and exhibition. He began to um, feature and invested more in video, beginning in the early 1970s. Um, in addition to the material I've mentioned, Warhol was developing scripts, uh, working with Vincent Fremont to create these video experiments, including Fight, uh, a, a tape that features Bridget uh, Polk Berlin and Charles Rydell. Uh, on location, and I'm going to show you uh, the beginning of this piece on video, black and white. And it was, again, shot within a, a constricted space uh, of an apartment where these two just rage at each other. Improvised, it sought to strip soap opera melodrama down to the scenes of argument. And um, I think this is a work that should be looked at as, with all of his work in video, relation not only to uh, a television, but to his films. Again, Warhol setting a scene with the actors playing off of each other, shot in black and white with a Sony Port-a-Pack uh, tape recorder, and then later edited by Vincent uh, Fremont. So we'll go to our final piece, uh, the opening sequence from Fight. This is from 1975. Okay. <laughs> that happens to be a very good painting. Thank you, Janine. Well, an excerpt's absolutely, uh, as you can tell, hilarious. But again, how uh, Warhol set up this scene, the simply working uh, with video. And, um, and by 1977, Warhol was working exclusively in video. And as I've written, he was developing Andy Warhol Productions, 
where he shot and appeared in music videos. Uh, he created a tape for Saturday Night Live, which he performed, uh, as well as appearing in fashion shoots. In addition, Andy Warhol Productions developed interview shows, Andy Warhol's TV for cable in New York City, and Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes for MTV. Like uh, his development of Interview Magazine, to which this is related, Warhol transformed himself uh, into a media personality appearing on television. In his own productions, as well as an appearance on America's then most popular television show, The Love Boat, where he performed as himself, artist, celebrity, actor. In both film and video, Warhol had an uncanny understanding of the medium, its power, and how to make it part of his vision, his creative world as an artist. Thank you very much. Um, as Peggy mentioned there, um, if, if those of you who want to stay, if, if any of you would like to um, ask questions or make comments, uh, I'd be happy to hear them and see if I can say anything. Um, I just like to, uh, I, I, well, I'll, I'll just begin by sharing a story with you that um, I'd like to tell about the running time of Warhol films. Remember I said they were filmed at 24 frames per second and then projected at this slow, silent speed. And uh, Jonas Mikas, who was one of the major figures in the avant-garde cinema, and uh, was, wanted to show Warhol's films to uh, Stan Brackage. And Stan Brackage, uh, he would work with his bolex and shoot these rapidly changing, moving, very different cinema from Warhol's. But uh, uh, Jonas wanted uh, Stan to see this work and set up a screening at Anthology, and uh, Stan went in to look at it, and a while later he came out, and Jonas said, well, what do you think? And he said, I don't, wasn't particularly impressed. And then he said, well, how did you see them? And then he realized that he had seen them at sound speed. And so he said, no, you have to go back in and watch them at the proper projection. And when he did and he came out, he said they were absolutely extraordinary and, and, and brilliant. And again, uh, Brackage recognized, as the filmmakers, oh, that whole filmmaker community did, that Warhol was, uh, uh, was part of that culture, film culture, in the 1960s, was creating something uh, radically uh, different and absolutely uh, compelling. Mm -hmm. Yes. I just want to make two observations because I've been kind of rediscovering some of the 60s stuff. When I was growing up in the 60s, I was uh, kind of had to keep to myself in high school when I was into this, this weird hmm. stuff. I mean, sometimes you couldn't even talk about it in the classroom. The teacher was pretty conservative, but uh, I noticed in some of the more, I think one of the films, Space, and another one, John Mary something. Oh, it's John and Ivy. John and Ivy. Yeah. It was fascinating the way, you know, the characters seemed to be oblivious of the camera, but obviously Warhol had given them some kind of cues, you know. And, and people have made remarks about, like, product placement. You know, some of the, the figures keep picking up a large bottle of Coca-Cola or hmm. moving around, you know, things like a box of, of, of Brillo pads, you know. And I realized at that time the public, there was a real disconnect between the being informed of the cultural importance of this stuff and, and the people involved in it. I, I think they were just more just about being themselves. They, they didn't really think, oh, we're like a cultural icon. And I think that all would come much later. You know, that's sort of the, if I may use the word, charm of mm -hmm. these, uh, these candid films. You know, they, they were just, the characters were so totally unposed. And I, I think that's sort of the beauty of it now. Mark, I want to make. I watched almost all of the Chelsea Girls just a couple of days ago, and that's. I don't think as a kid I could have sat through the whole three hours of it, but I noticed how that metamorphosed from being kind of just candid remarks. It became more like choreographed as it got toward the end, and the part. Was that Melinda uh, or Paul America who did the, the monologue with the red strobe light? That, that was really. I, I think. Yeah. That was Warhol and not Morrissey.
Oh, yeah, the, the, uh, Chelsea Girls is definitely a Warhol production. Not only production, but he was, it was a film that he made. And uh, Morrissey figured in later things, and as I said, in the post-filming. I don't know if he was, I can't recall if he was somehow involved, but. He did because one of the characters was talking to the camera person, talking, talking, talking. Okay, well, let me just, uh, let me just pick up on that. The point is that uh, Morrissey was involved in camera work in various ways, but it wasn't as a principle. I mean, it was all following a, you know, a Warhol design. And I mean, uh, yes, it was, there was no product placement because they were dealing with the products of their life. And there was, um, and they were um, uh, people that were a part of a culture, uh, you know, in the factory that were um, set into play. I mean, John and Ivy, I mean, it's a fantastic film in terms of the people and the situation they were put in. And then how, I mean, a filmmaker might have cut away, you know, uh, uh, stopped not bothered with it. And um, Warhol's fascination with these people, but also fascination with putting them into a situation and watching them. And, and people were attracted to the factory as a place where they you know, could be and be like recognized. Pardon me? It's like a, a well, like any subculture, I mean, there is that. But the thing is that it, they were also getting enormous amount of attention. I mean, Warhol was, you know, I mean, huge. And the, all those people were featured in Life magazine and all these things. So, um, but it was, um, uh, for all of them, something, the films were really radical, and both in terms that they were not, um, you know, within the frame of the art world as such, and, um, you know, Warhol's decision to withdraw his films and resist bringing them back. Uh, uh, I mean, I think there were a lot of reasons for that. I think it was all the people that were in the films and, and what had happened to him because he was shot. And, uh, and I think that's his effort to withdraw that material out, put it away. And, um, but the, what's very interesting is to see now how the scholarship, art historical scholarship that looks at Warhol is now beginning to look at the films more and more deeply and how that's shifting. Again, remember my remark about how we're gonna see 20th century art differently because of the moving image. And we're seeing Warhol differently and we're seeing him in relationship to all the people, Ronald Tavell, Jack Smith, the people that came into the orbit uh, of his films. So, um, and then some of that's reflected in the Warhol headline show, very interesting to see how the archive of Warhol's life is presented in that exhibition. Yeah. Um, could you expand a bit more on why Warhol withdrew his films from distribution? And can you also explain seriously why Andy Warhol would want to be on something as lousy as the Love Boat? Well, uh, I think that he withdrew his films because uh, it really wasn't the focus of his attention. And um, I also think that it was more than he really knew how to deal with, and he decided to put them away. And uh, as much effort as it was made to try to convince him and, uh, until um, the project uh, of my uh, realized that, but it's, um, and, it's, uh, I, th I think, as, as simple or as complicated as that. Now, in terms of the love boat, now you have to remember that Warhol was, as I mentioned in the conclusion of my talk, doing his TV shows. He did, he's on cable, uh, Madison Square T Cable in New York City, and then MTV. He was interviewing people in the fashion, movie world, different artists. I mean, all, all kinds of artists and so forth that were, he was interviewing. You know, and after he was shot, he began to go to the gym, sort of rebuild himself physically and became a model, runway model that actually did things like that. And then in the Andy Warhol Productions, appeared in Cars, all music videos, and um, other music videos that they were producing. And uh, of course, he was a celebrity, but he was interested, I, I read it, in terms of the television work 
in um, putting himself, you know, as a kind of performer. You know, I mean, not just commenting on it, but actually, I mean, he made these experimental videos, but he was also making these uh, products, uh, the commercials and and television shows and so forth. And um, the uh, producer of um, uh, Douglas, um, there was uh, the well-known producer of The Love Boat, uh, who produced that and a lot of other big TV shows back then, was, and I, his name just slipped my mind, is, uh, was a major art collector and also. And so I think that he, that's how the connection was made. Here's America's most popular show. And so he, he appears on, you know, and they say, and he walks onto this. And so it's just, what I find so kind of fantastic about it is that he appears there not as somebody else, but as himself. You know, Aaron Spelling. Aaron Spelling, thank you. I think that's who, is it Aaron Spelling? No, it's Douglas. I can't, you know, what an embarrassing moment. Don't tell anybody. I can't remember. Anyway, it wasn't uh, Aaron Spelling. I don't think so. He was a um, big at time LA collector. So I think that's how the, the connection was made. And then the kind of fascination to appear in that way and just it was, it was on the screen for a bit. And he also did a short piece I mentioned for, that was shown on Saturday Night Live. You know, and it was very interesting to rediscover all that work and to um, put it more into play with ways to understand the artist. I'll take one more question, if there is one. Yes. Just a comment. I was really happy to see that in the beginning when you talked about the shadows and the ah. connection to the moving, because that's the first thing I thought of when I walked past and I could see it flickering down the corner ah. was the movement. And I really appreciate that you Well, I appreciate your saying that because um, uh, I thought it, was a, it is a compelling connection. And then those strips of film. Huh? Did anybody get it? Did everybody get a strip of film? Who wanted one? Anyway. So don't forget the cinema and thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> this has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 